Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Hot Topics. This is actually TruthQuest podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rather than just believing something because it's been passed down or because other people have believed it. We want to know what the Bible says so we can know what to believe. If you have a question, submit your question through the comment section, write the word question in front of it, and then read it a couple of times. Make sure that it makes sense, and I'll do my best to point us in a biblical direction for what that question is. If um, we don't have all the answers to it, uh, we'll at least discuss it, maybe head down a correct path to find the answer that God has for us. Our first question comes from our Bible study that we had on Wednesday. We're talking about Galatians chapter 2, the second half of the chapter, as Paul is defending the gospel and defending that we do not have to do any any works to get saved. I love the very last verse of Galatians chapter 2, where he says this. Let me go ahead and put it on the screen for you. Uh, He says, I do not not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died in vain. That sums up the entire chapter. I do not set aside the grace of God. And anytime a legalist tries to approach us to get us to believe that we have to do something to get saved, we should say that. I do not set aside the grace of God. The word grace means undeserved favor. You could just say that. I do not set aside the undeserved favor. I can't do anything to deserve it. But the first question is, was Paul right or wrong for calling out Peter publicly in Galatians chapter 2. Now, uh, I've changed my view on this a little bit. Uh, In the past, when I've taught on Galatians, I've always seen Peter, uh, Paul here, as being a little bit wrong. I I kind of look at that with the confrontation that he had with Barnabas as well over John Mark. Uh, And really, I guess we can't really tell. Uh, But I I hear what Paul says in this section, and I start to think that he's kind of looking at hierarchy that there is no hierarchy with God. There are, there are none that God doesn't hold any preferences. Let me look at, let me show you this again by looking at the scriptures and I'll tell you what I, what I mean. I don't know that Paul has the exact right heart or attitude here, but he tells us that he, uh, now when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed, literally because he was wrong. Before certain men had come from James, that's the pastor of Jerusalem, uh, the temple's still there, They're having trouble with the transition of being Jewish and being Christian. So they're trying to make Christianity Judaism or a sect of Judaism. It says he would eat eat with the Gentiles. So Peter would eat with the Gentiles before these brethren from James came down. And then it says he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So he feared men instead of God. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of a Gentile, not as a Jew, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Now, again, earlier he had said that God shows no partiality. And I think that maybe God allowed this to happen and really gives us the information here in Galatians so that you and I would know that there's no real hierarchy, that we're all the same. Hey, we hold different positions, like a general and a colonel can hold different positions, but they're really the same. And we are the same in Christ. And sometimes we elevate people, we lift them up to where we shouldn't do it. So was Paul right or wrong for doing this? I think he was right because the legalists were, were bringing their false doctrine throughout the whole region. And what Peter had done, and Barnabas as well, and the brethren that came from James in setting up their own kosher table and not eating with Gentiles was to separate themselves from the rest of the body of Christ. And the legalism was coming in, the legalist was coming in and saying, you guys have to become Jewish in order to really be Christians. And Paul wanted to make a statement that they had done this, but it was wrong, and he withstood them to their face. And I think it's because the Corinthians, excuse me, the Galatians had believed the lies. They had given themselves over to false doctrine. And if you are a pastor or you've spent any time pastoring, then you know that if someone that you've taught and has said into your teaching suddenly believes something that is false, 
It is brutal and hard to handle and I think that that's the case with Paul. But he wants to make sure that he's laying a good solid foundation for the fact that we do not have to do any work by the law in order to be saved. And um, this was just one of the legalist things that we may run into today. You may run into legalism through baptism, legalism through the Sabbath day, legalism through speaking in tongues, all of these things saying that you must do these things in order to genuinely be saved. And of course, I do not set aside grace, is what Paul said. And, um, and that's really good. So was Peter right or wrong, was Paul right or wrong? for standing up and rebuking Peter who was an apostle and not just an apostle, a leader in the apostles. Was he wrong for rebuking him face to face? I don't think so because I think what Peter was doing was struggling through this and he got into some difficulties and had a hard time making the transition. And just because they were apostles didn't mean that they always did what was right or said what was right. And that's important for us to understand. All right, so um, I appreciate you guys. Good to see you here. A psych man got the first question today. Good to see you, psych man. Let me go ahead and erase uh, this question here, and then we'll bring in your question. So psych man says, um, my cousin is here and wants to know why we no longer follow Old Testament laws. I've explained it, but he wants to hear it from you. All right, thanks, psych man. I appreciate, and hello to your cousin, whatever your cousin's name is. It's good to have you joining us here. Uh, so the law came as a, it says this in Galatians, the law came as a tutor or a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And once we come to Christ, we no longer need the tutor. Once a, once a, a tutor brings you to your parent, you no longer need the tutor. So the law condemns us. The Bible says no one has ever been saved by the law and the law cannot save. All it can do is reveal to you your sin. And so they had to keep sacrifices under the law to cover their sin. But it was all a foreshadowing and a type of Christ. The Sabbaths, the new moons, Colossians tells us, 2.16 I think it is, that all of these things were a shadow of things to come and that we are to let no one judge us in these matters so that we are no longer under the law. Even the Ten Commandments, you could make a point that that's part of the Jewish law and we've been set free from it but we're gonna keep those commandments because we walk in love. And so if we love God, we're not gonna put any other God before him. We're not gonna bear false witness against someone if we love them. And we're gonna to look to rest in Christ. That is the, the fulfillment of the Sabbath law. In other words, we can't keep the Old Testament law because we don't have a high priest today. There's not a temple. You can't make the sacrifices. But Jesus became our high priest so we don't have a temple today. We don't need a high priest. Jesus became our sacrifice, so we don't need sacrifices. He became our rest, so we don't need to keep the Sabbath. And the Bible is very clear on this in several places. Many of them here in Galatians uh, that I just got done reading in chapter two that I do not set aside grace. For if salvation came by the law, then Christ died in vain. And that's a pretty important statement to be able to make. So, no, we are not under the law. And it's surprising to me that the legalists are still out there today and they still want to push people to keep the law. But it shouldn't surprise me because I think it has to do with pride. The, the hook in the false teaching of legalism is pride. I'm doing what I need to do to be saved. When you can't be prideful about undeserved favor. I was saved by undeserved favor. I was saved by grace. And so I don't deserve it. And it helps me to walk in humility, knowing that God chose me, even God rescued me, and then set my feet upon the rock, but I was on sand and I was sinking. The law did its job. It was like a mirror that revealed to me what my sin is. When I wake up in the morning, I look in the mirror, I go, oh, I need help. And after I get done, I look in the mirror and go, okay, looking pretty good now. When you looked into the law before Christ, it showed you, you need help. But once you come to Christ, then you, he, he forgives you, he cleanses you, he makes you righteous. You look back in the mirror and you go, I like what I see. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done for me. All right, so thank you, Psych Man. If your cousin has any more questions or wants clarifications, uh, then go ahead and ask them. I appreciate you and I appreciate your question. So good to see you guys. Andre got second today. He's usually the first, right? Andre always has good questions, so does Psych Man, but Andre has good questions. 
Was Peter intimidating, um, in, intimidating, intim, let me see, was Peter that the angels were curious about the ministry of, oh, yeah, all right, intimating that the angels were curious about the ministry of the apostles once the Holy Spirit was upon them. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Angels or angels, should they already know? All right, let me look at this and see what 1 Peter 1, 10 and 12 says. And we'll take a look at it. 1 Peter 1. Ten and twelve. So first Peter, make sure I got the right one. First Peter one, first Peter two. Why am I in first Peter two? First Peter first Peter one, ten and twelve. Alright. So let's see. Um all right, let's go ahead and put this up on screen and we'll read it together. See if we can figure this out. Alright. So, uh, verse 10, it says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through these who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desire to look into. Okay, so um, he's talking about the Old Testament prophecies that foretold the coming of Jesus, right? That's the passage. That's what the passage is talking about. And uh, your question here is, let me see if I can get back to the question. So your question was, the angels were curious about the ministry of the apostles once the Holy Spirit was upon them. Um, yeah, or maybe curious about the work of God or the way that everything was going to work out. So I'm, you know, when, it, when the Bible makes few, a few references about angels, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it talks about women covering their head for the sake of the angels. We know that angels are ministering spirits to us. We know that they would have been ministering spirits to the apostles. And now we have the fulfillment of why Jesus suffered and came to earth and began to work among the Gentiles and um, to these that are it has been revealed to. So maybe all of this stuff wasn't revealed to them and as time went on, they were just paying close attention to the gospel that had been given to them and the Holy Spirit which had been given to them, um, to these things which angels desire to look into. I think angels must be pretty amazed at God saving us, God choosing us and saving us. So um, I think that that is a, a possibility, Andre. So yeah, I don't know if... Um, Peter was intimating that the angels were curious about the ministry of the apostles once the Holy Spirit was upon them. Yeah, I think I, I think that that could be answered with a, a yes, I think. All right, so thank you, Andre. I appreciate that. Uh, if you are new here, we want to welcome you. We hope that you are blessed by taking time to look at the scriptures and to look for questions. If you have a question, write down the word question and then reread it a couple of times, write the word question in front of it, reread it a couple of times, make sure it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. Hi, Pastor. If experts claim the rapture would make Jesus coming three times, wouldn't we need to count the days after Jesus resurrected as well? All right, let me read that again. <clears throat> if experts claim the rapture would make Jesus coming three times, wouldn't we need to count the days after Jesus' resurrection as well. All right, so I've never heard this claim, Diana, that Jesus came the first time when he was born, came the second time when he was resurrected, would come the third time when he returned. I would say that the resurrection is part of the first time that he came. And so we have him coming the first time, and then he would go on a trip, Right, and this is, he told this in an analogy called the parable of the minas, or the parable of the stewards that we're going to be looking at tonight in our Bible study. That he would go on a trip, he would give 
uh, responsibilities to his servants and then they would work that out until he returned. And so, yeah, I would say, I would say I don't see a problem with that. I'm trying to think of if there's another way they could count three times, the rapture would make three times. If he came back the first time and then he came back in the rapture and then he came in the third time. So, yeah, I, again, he doesn't come to earth in the rapture. He, we meet the Lord in the air. He returns to the earth in Matthew 24, sends his angels out to gather the survivors uh, from the tribulation period, but doesn't come back to the earth with the rapture of the church. We meet him in the air. And so I've never heard this. I'm not sure how we would need to count the days after Jesus' resurrection as well. Count the days after Jesus' resurrection as well. Um, so he was seen by people a few days afterwards. Um, I would not think that that would need to be counted. I would count that as his first time. He's not coming back. He was rising from the dead. They had killed him and he was rising from the dead. So I wouldn't see, I've never heard this before. I'd love to hear a little bit more about it, but I couldn't see how that could be a legitimate argument against the rapture of the church. Jesus needed to come back three times. Um, really, you know, he came once to suffer and then he'll come back again to reign. And he suffered and rose again, fulfilling scriptures that had been written about him at that time. All right, good question. Good questions today. Uh, good to see you guys again. We have another question from Paul. Paul says several of the gospels are similar in writing and story, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I am new to the study of the Bible and was curious why they do not have their own stories of what happened. Or did they borrow from one gospel source to write their own? Paul, thank you. Good to see you. Um, yeah, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, by Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, were all written for different reasons. For the first, I don't know, um, let's just call it 15 years, 10, 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus, there were stories that were passed along, either written down or orally. And then they were put together in a compilation by Mark, by John Mark. Uh, this is the first gospel to be written. It's not the first New Testament book to be written. That would be 1 Thessalonians or Galatians or 1 and 2 Thessalonians and Galatians would be the first books to be written. But then the gospels came after that. But the early writings of Paul have references to what's in the gospels, which is really an important point. And it has references to what we call a high Christology, which we would find from the gospels. Jesus walking on the water. Jesus saying, before Abraham was, I am. These are all points that are made in these early gospels, in these early epistles before the gospels were written. So if you read Mark's gospel, it seems to be a collection of shorter stories that are put together in basically chronological order, sometimes put together to be able to make a point to what is next to it. So there's what's called a Markian sandwich sometimes where you have one story between two other stories that add to that story. So you've got to remember that when you're reading the book of Mark. But Mark didn't really sit down to write an orderly account. He was just giving a basic account of these stories that had been circulating within the church about Christ since the time that he rose again until the time that he sat down to write them. And um, we are now confident that Galatians and 1 Thessalonians were written somewhere in the um, late 40s and not long after that, the book of Mark was written. So Matthew came and did a work for Jews, for Jewish people. So he wanted to connect the Old Testament to these accounts that were given by Mark and adds a few more that Mark had left out. So he says, and when you begin reading Matthew, immediately you notice something different. It says, that this was done so this could be fulfilled as it said, I will call my son out of Egypt. Or there will be mourning, the mourning of Rachel weeping for her children. So he starts pointing fulfilled passages out in the book of Matthew. Luke was written, and it tells us in the very beginning of Luke, for an orderly account. He says to his friend Theopolis, I wanted to write you an orderly account of the things that happened concerning Jesus Christ. And he writes an orderly account of the, of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus 
and then he goes on to write the book of Acts, which is the first part of the church. While the epistles were being written and circulated, um, we've got the life of, really, the life of the early apostles and then the life of Paul all the way until he is arrested and taken to Rome. And so, um, these, three, these three are called the Synoptic Gospels. M Matthew, no doubt borrowed from Mark. M Luke, no doubt borrowed from Mark. Doesn't mean that was their only source. It means it was one of their sources. And then they took other sources and they expound on some of those stories. They add to some of those stories. They don't give as much as Mark gives in some of the stories because of the different reasons that they were writing. The most comprehensive of the Gospels is the book of Luke. And he says, I sat down to write an orderly account. And we find several things in the book of Luke that we do not find anywhere else. So this was common, open, circulating stuff that Mark put together and then that got added a little bit later on. The book of John was completely unique. Uh, this was a total different source. John wrote this later on in his lifetime. Uh, he is an eyewitness to these accounts. Remember, Matthew was an eyewitness to them as well. So he was able to take the stories that John Mark, who was young during the life of Jesus, was able to give and to give his own eyewitness account to it. And then John came along and said, I'm writing this to you so that you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so he has a whole different purpose so that people would hear it, listen to it, would read it, and put their trust and faith in Christ. And he starts by declaring Jesus as God that what they didn't know during this ministry, they know now. There's the seven I am's in the gospel and it's very, very powerful. So all four of these are different uh, and they're, they were written for different reasons. And um, yeah, I don't know about the source Q. So there's some people who say that there was a source Q that Mark borrowed from when he wrote the book of Mark and we've since lost that source. I don't know about that. Uh, it may be, that the oral traditions or things that people had written down and passed them on to other Christians. Because remember, Christianity began to grow immediately. That's why we didn't lose these, these accounts, these narratives, because it began to grow and people began to share the kind of things that were happening with Christ. And so there could be, instead of a, a, a document called Q, there could be the truth. And the truth is this, this thing that binds them all together instead of the document Q binding them all together. It's the truth. They were all coming back to what the truth is. And they were coming at it from slightly different directions in a little different time in which all four of the Gospels were written. So they're all four unique. They're written for different reasons. They're written to different people. And that's all important for us to understand. All right? And... Um, so you say here, several of the Gospels are similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that's called the Synoptic Gospels. I'm new to studying the Bible, so I'm glad that you're studying it. You're really pouring in. There's a lot of things to discover as you dive into it. Don't be afraid to dive in to some of the difficulties that are there as well. Study the Bible, being able to give an answer for everything that is in them. All right, Paul, thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's good to see you. Uh, Albert has a question here. I do want to thank the moderators, Carl. Thank you for that. Uh, you guys are awesome. Just making sure things are orderly here, right? Um, and uh, just helping out anybody that needs help. Um, Albert says, and good to see you, Albert. Albert says, hello, Pastor. Can you explain why Matthew 24, 20, Jesus said to pray that the abomination of desolation does not take place on the Sabbath? Thank you, Pastor, and God bless you. Yeah, um, so... In Matthew 24, he's dealing with mostly those who are Jewish. That's why we talk about the Sabbath in the middle of the abomination of desolation. We know it's yet to take place from the life of Jesus because he said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. Some people said it was fulfilled in Antichaeus Epiphanes, but Jesus talked about it being in the future. Jesus said there's a time coming that is unlike anything this world has ever seen or anything that the world's ever going to see. We have yet to see that even now, so it's in our future as well. The abomination of desolation is when the Antichrist sets up a statue or the false, uh, or the false prophet sets up a statue of the Antichrist in the newly rebuilt temple. So there's this new system. Maybe there are sacrifices that are reinstated. There's a little bit that we don't know about it, but they are now returning to the temple. 
And I think that this is what gives rise to the Antichrist. He comes up with some plan to bring peace to the Middle East. And this is why he's called a man of peace. But he's a false man of peace. Jesus is the true man of peace. The Antichrist is a false man of peace. He's really after war. But I think it's it's the, the treaty that he signs with the nation of Israel or with many in Daniel chapter 9 has to do with the Temple Mount. That's what I believe. Now, there could be something else that he does with Israel, but they receive him and the temple is rebuilt. And then in the middle of those three and a half years, the abomination of desolation happens. When that happens, he turns his wrath towards Israel. He now wants them to worship him. He's taken over the temple and they have to flee Israel. And so when they have to flee, then pray that it's not on the Sabbath. Because remember, there are still in Israel today, and there will be even more so, I think, in that day that the temple is rebuilt, there will be more who are keeping the law. And so, in order to not keep the law, they're going to believe it's not on Sabbath. And I think the same thing could have been said when, and remember, it's much different. People try to say that this was fulfilled in 70 AD, but they were embarked by, um, they were surrounded by the Romans. So when the time of destruction came, they couldn't even escape. They couldn't have escaped no matter what day it was because there was no place to go. And four years later, they were destroyed. They were surrounded um, and sieged in, 60, in 66. Four years later in 70 AD, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. So it's in the future and he's talking to the Jews who are in Jerusalem. And remember, boy, we couldn't even be talking about this 100 years ago. 100 years ago, there were just a few thousand Jews in Israel, uh, but now there are 6 million. And so we know that it's possible now for the temple to be rebuilt and for all the things that God prophesied about Israel to be true. So he's writing to those who are Jewish in Matthew 24, dealing with mostly Jews who are there. And so he talks about the Sabbath and that they would pray that the abomination and desolation wouldn't happen on that day. Because if, the, if it does, then there are people who are not going to be able to escape. And the Antichrist attacks them and the dragon attacks them, which is Satan. And they are kept supernaturally by God uh, so that God can get them through the tribulation period. Because at that point, they no longer follow the Antichrist, but they turn and they start living and believing in the true living God. All right, Albert, good question. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, and I look forward to your next one. We have another question from Jari. Jari says, question, will some animals and humans stay babies in the new heaven and the new earth? We grow old, but never age. In the lake of fire, will people look ugly and old like zombies? Well, I don't know. You could make a, a good movie about it, I guess. Um, no, there will be no, no animals and humans that stay babies. I think that everybody's going to go up into heaven and they're going to be mature. Um, I don't think people will need to grow up in heaven. I mean, I could be wrong about that. Um, I don't know if there's anything in the Bible that would restrict that, but that's what I think. They won't stay babies for sure. It's not like if you die and you're 100, you're going to look 100 forever. You're going to be, you're going to have a restored body. <clears throat> and I think that we won't look that way. Although probably we care a lot more about it today, living in this world, than we will in heaven. Um, the lake of fire, I, I have no idea. I have no idea. I think... There are, and I want to be careful how I say this, but I think there's a lot of analogies when it comes to hell and the lake of the, and, and death and grave and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire and exactly what that existence is going to be apart from God in this place that was created for Satan and his enemies. I don't think that we can really draw a good picture of it. I think we've got a lot of our information from Dante's Inferno from, from a long time ago and a lot of what we think is not biblical, like Satan ruling over hell, or that people today would die and go to hell because they don't die and go to hell today. They may go to some place that's a place where they're in torment, like the rich man and Lazarus, but that is not thrown, Sheol or, or Hades is not thrown into death, is not thrown into hell until during the book of Revelation. All right? So there's just got to be some clarification for uh, the for hell <clears throat> that needs to really happen. Um, I don't think people want to talk much about those clarifications because they're afraid if they do, that some people will believe that hell is not as bad as what they want people to believe, so they'll avoid it. But Jesus said some will be beaten with few stripes and some will be beaten with many. All right, we have a question here from Kat. 
Kat says, Pastor, I have heard Joe Biden's name means um, a last judgment in Hebraic. Is this accurate? What does it mean? I haven't heard that, so I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm just not going to be able to give you an answer on that. Um, yeah, I'll try to remember to take a look in it. But Joe Biden, I'm just going to say this. I would think it doesn't, but I could be wrong. I know I've heard people say that before on certain you know podcasts and stuff where they start giving an opinion about something and they're completely wrong. Um, but I will look into it. I don't know. All right, Kat, thank you very much uh, for your question. If you're joining us for the first time here, really glad to have you. If you have a question, write the word question or put a question mark in front of it. R uh, write out your question, reread it a couple of times, add references if you want me to look something up and we can read it together. Um, it's a good thing to add references if you have them, the exact references, that way we can look it up together. We have a question here from Annika. Annika, good to see you. Annika says, when would Jesus have completed his suffering? Was it on the cross or was it when he rose? I know some people say that Jesus went to hell before he rose. Yeah, and that is, that is a false teaching of the prosperity movement, the faith movement. They teach that Jesus had to suffer in hell because we were gonna suffer in hell. So Jesus had to suffer in hell. We've already talked about the fact that death and Hades will not be thrown into hell until the book of Revelation. And so if Jesus suffered somewhere, he suffered somewhere different. It says that he went down and preached the gospel to spirits who were in chains. Uh, it says that he led host of captives and, and ascended, but that he first descended. Seems like he went down and, and took the Old Testament saints up into the presence of God. Maybe that place was in the middle of the earth. Maybe it's spiritual. There are souls and people spiritual, you know, that was spiritual. And maybe they are in the center of the earth, but not in a place that you could dig down and find. Kind of like heaven is spiritual, and maybe heaven is a, is in a long ways our way up in heaven, uh, in the sky, but it's more around us than we know, because it's spiritual. It's it's a completely different realm. Um, so this is a false teaching. The Bible clearly says Jesus shed His blood for our sins. So the forgiveness of our sins came from the shedding of His blood. We also know that He died to pay the penalty of death for us. So these are two different events that happened. One of them, Jesus dying so that he could take my place, the, atone, the atoning work of Christ on the cross, so that I no longer am dead, but I've been set free from that because Christ died for me. And even if I die, I will live. He has said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And so on the cross, he died, paying my penalty for sin. And he also removed my sin by bleeding for me because life is in the blood. And when he bled, he bled for all of mankind and we are ransomed by his blood. It says nothing about him going into hell to suffer. This is a fabrication that people make uh, to try to come up with something interesting and something new when in fact, it's just not true. All right, so thank you very much, um, Annika. I appreciate that, I appreciate you. And we will see you later on. Um, so we have another question from Fact Check These Hands regarding our dwelling place in heaven. Was Jesus literal when he said this? I'm curious because I don't understand the need to have homes in heaven. Can you elaborate? Yeah, let's just go to the passage. Let's go to uh, John chapter 14 and look at the beginning here. All right, I'm gonna put this up on the screen for you. So your question is regarding dwelling places in heaven, was Jesus literal when he said this? So let me get them up on the screen for you. So this is John chapter 14, verse one. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. This is where Thomas says, we don't know the way that you're going. But Jesus says here that he's going away, and if he goes away, he's gonna prepare a place for you, and he's gonna come back and get you and take you back to that place. Remember, um, and I'm gonna go back, fact check these hands, I think is who the question is from. Remember, uh, we are, in resurrected bodies by the time we get up into eternity. And 
I don't know. Uh, the, the Bible talks about heaven having transparent walls, golden streets, and pearly gates. Are these all analogies? Pearly gates, you enter into heaven through agitation. Um, golden streets, the stuff that's valuable on earth, we walk on in heaven. Uh, transparent walls, there's no need for privacy, but we need privacy today. But we have a place. We belong there. I take it we have some real estate in the New Jerusalem. We have the real estate in heaven because we have a body. Um, I don't know that I'm going to need to go any place to rest or eat or hang out or kill some time, right? I don't, I don't know anything about heaven there. I would also like to pull up the Strong's Concordance on this because I want to look at what the word house or mansion is here and just take a quick look under Strong's. Um, I heard that BDAG has a, uh, a, a new app out. So I want to take a look at that as well. So we could do this through maybe what is a better concordance than what uh, Strong's is. But Strong's is pretty good. It gives you a basic idea of what's there. So let me go ahead and bring this up now. And so um, let me go back to, I'm just going to do this while you're here watching, um, to 14. He says, let not your hearts, let me go ahead and get, I got something blocking my view here. Um, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. In my Father's house are many mansions. I'm going to go ahead and click on mansions. And it tells us is it is this word that comes from 3306, a staying residence, an act or place, abode, and then it gives mansion. And then I'm going to go ahead and, and scroll down here. And it's only used, can you see that? Two places in the Bible. One of them is mansion and one of them is our abode. So let's go to the our abode and take a look at what that is. Jesus answered and said to him, John 14, oh yeah, I got to click on that. All right. So I think it was 23. Jesus answered and said to him, if a man loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and will come unto him and make our abode with him. So that's interesting. A little, little quick word study, a little quick Bible study. It's interesting that the word is only in two places. One time it talks about us living with him and him making a place for us and the other time about him coming and living inside of us. So it makes me think that there is something happening here that is more than just a room, more than just a mansion. I think there literally is a way in which you and I are a part of what heaven is about and that there is a place for us there, that we are citizens of heaven and we have a place, but our place is with God and God's place is with us. And I love that. I'm going to use that in sermons too, by the way. Our place is with God and God's place is with us uh, because this word for mansion here is only used in a couple of places. All right. So um, good stuff uh, regarding this uh, dwelling place. Um, and we are going to have physical bodies and who knows exactly what we're going to be doing in heaven. There's a lot of mystery that comes along when we're talking about heaven and, and these kind of things. So we have a question from uh, Express Kimberly. She says, could you explain the difference between the seal of the Holy Spirit upon salvation and baptism of the Holy Spirit? Is this a gift? And baptism of John the Baptist and the baptism of Christ. Okay, so we've got three baptisms and we've got the seal. So let me take them in reverse order. Let's talk about the baptism of Christ first. So Jesus identifies with us. He's a perfect man. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He did not need to be converted, which is what Paul was saying to Israel. Normally, if you were a Gentile, you were baptized if you were converting to Judaism. But he's telling Israel, be baptized and repent and make your life straight for the Messiah is about to arrive. So to enter into the new kingdom, they were being baptized to get themselves ready for it. And so Christ joined them and was baptized identifying with us, with sinful man, because he would identify with us on the cross. And because he identified with me on the cross, I'm saved. And he identified with me in baptism, the burial and resurrection. Now when I'm baptized, I'm now identifying with Christ, the burial and the resurrection. So this is uh, the, let me go ahead and get your question from the beginning again. Could you explain the difference between the seal of the Holy Spirit upon salvation and the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Is it the gift? the baptism of John and the baptism of Christ. Okay, so I think I've got the baptism of John and the baptism of Christ. 
What's the baptism of the Holy Spirit? There's, interestingly enough, in the Bible, it's never called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's a reference to it in the book of Acts that seems to refer to the Holy Spirit coming upon people and empowering them with gifts as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It says something like they had only been baptized in the baptism of Jesus. So it refers to the Holy Spirit, but they'd only been baptized in the baptism of Jesus, but never calls it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think it's a proper statement. When you baptize something, you immerse it. And when I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit, I'm immersed in the Holy Spirit. When I come to Christ, the Holy Spirit is in me because I can't be born again without the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord without it. So I have to have the Holy Spirit, but then the Holy Spirit comes upon me and empowers me and gives me gifts. And I believe that the gifts are for today and that the baptism or the filling of the Holy Spirit or the upon experience or the receiving of the Spirit are all talking about the same thing. I think that people today are using different statements to talk about the same thing, but that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The seal of the Holy Spirit is completely different. The seal is like the down payment. So when I came to Christ, I'm saved. God's going to resurrect my body. He has redeemed me and will one day redeem this body. And I will no longer have the struggle that I have now, my flesh fighting against the spirit and the spirit fighting against the flesh. And I will be given a new body in heaven and I will live out all of eternity with him. The gift of the Holy Spirit inside of me or the sealing of the Holy Spirit is the down payment that all of those things are going to happen. I am his now because I am the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians. That is the seal that he has put upon me. And that's a guarantee for my eternity, for him. And it is different than the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a different experience. And it is not the gifts. The, the seal that is put upon us when we are born again is a mark that we belong to God and it's a mark of the promise of all the things that God is going to bring into our lives. All right, let me just read it through, make sure I got them all. Could you explain the difference between the seal of the Holy Spirit upon salvation and baptism of the Spirit? Okay, I think I've done that. So you can have the Holy Spirit but not be empowered by Him. Um, Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And I think we can pray to be empowered and the Spirit comes upon us. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, as each one of you has received a gift, minister that gift therefore to one another. So we receive gifts that we can minister to each other. All right, and then the baptism of John and the baptism of Christ. Okay, so I think I got them all. If I didn't get you what you were completely looking for, Kimberly, go ahead and ask a follow-up question or ask in a future Q&A. All right, so we have another question. Let's see, let me read this first. All right, let's go ahead and bring this in. So, um, people hurting people says, question, when weary wit family friends who want help but refuse Jesus and worse, what to do when we get weary with people at church? The fake behavior, the gossip, etc. So weary, read Elijah, weary already. All right, so people hurting people. Um, I'm just kind of getting the feeling for what you're saying here. Um, so your concern is over the hypocrisy that there is in the church. But here's the thing. We know that the, that the kingdom of God was going to be larger than what God intended. The mustard tree was going to have the birds of the air fill its wings. So there is the true church. And then there's a church that has tares among the wheat. And we can't try to identify who the tares are. And on top of that, Christians can have hypocrisy and mistreat one another. So never are we told to look at the church in order to win people to Christ. The Bible says that if we love one another, 
they will know that we are his disciples by the love that we have for one another. So that's really good to walk in love towards each other. And the church should be doing more of that. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ has also forgiven us. And so this is an opportunity for people hurting people, uh, for you to forgive, for us to forgive people that have done things that are wrong. And I understand growing weary and tired about these kind of things. Um, I've dealt with, I've been a pastor of the same church for 37 years and I have been blessed to do so. But I've seen a lot of things that aren't right. And I know my own heart. I know the difficulties that I've had. And so I wanna be very careful about judging people. I wanna be very careful of not putting myself up as more important or better than them, as making myself more important. I wanna walk in humility. And um, that can be difficult when we start pointing fingers and saying, you know, there's a lot of fake behavior, gossip, etc. I think if we search inside of our own hearts, there's times where there's fake behavior, gossip, and etc. I know I've had fake behavior before and gossip. I wish I didn't, but I was being honest. And so weary, read Elijah, weary already. I'm sorry that you're weary and tired. Maybe you're looking for the wrong thing. It is Christ who is perfect. Place your eyes upon him. And I, I, I'm, I don't wanna be critical, but I think that um, you have friends and family that you wanna see come to Christ, but they say there's too many hypocrites within the church. Well, yeah, there are, but there's hypocrites everywhere. And you may have heard it said, if you find a church without any hypocrites, don't join it, because you'll ruin it. And I think that's true. I think instead we focus in on Jesus we look at our own lives, we look at ourselves and what we're facing and going through, and we try to make sure that we're living for Jesus as much as we can. And if someone is in the wrong, we're told in the Bible what to do. In Galatians 6.1, it says, if anybody commits a sin, those of you who are spiritual, go to such a one and restore them in a spirit of meekness, gentleness, lest you yourself also be tempted. We're also told in 2 Timothy that the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, correcting those who are in opposition. So there needs to be gentleness. I, I already quoted Ephesians 4.32, where we're commanded to love and to be tender and to forgive one another. And so I try not to get too weary or freaked out when I see things done by people in the church that are wrong. They happen, but people are sinners and they're struggling with their flesh, the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. That's not to justify it. That's not to say that it's okay because it's not okay, but it's simply to say that's what you have. When you have a group of people that are not perfected yet and you bring them together, but love covers a multitude of sins and we are to walk in that love. And I think that if you're weary, then come to Christ. Jesus said, if you are weary and heavy laden, then come unto me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. So come to Christ. If, if you're weary, if you're burdened, then something is, is, is wrong. I'm not saying it's not hard. There's a difference between being weary and I'm so wore out and I just can't take it anymore. I don't know what I'm gonna do. There's a difference between that and this is hard. Life is hard, life is tough, but I'm doing it. There's a difference. And if I'm reading this right, it seems like you may be weary and wanting people to be what they're not. But what we really need to look at is what Jesus is, right? Instead of what people in the church who have never meant to be perfect, none of them are perfect. Um, I know there can be really some horrible things that happen in church. Uh, genuine Christians can do some bad things, but I think that most bad things that happen in church are done by the tares. That's what I would believe. And I think I can make that argument because they're, they're not regenerated. They don't desire to really do all the things that God wants them to do. And we're to wait till the end of the age before we try to get them out of there. So as a pastor, I'm not supposed to judge, are you a genuine Christian or not? I just need to know an enemy came in and so tears among the wheat. And I need to wait until judgment and God's gonna take them out and separate the two. God's the one who can do that. If I start doing that, I'm gonna end up taking the tares out with the wheat. So I'm not sure what's going on, um, people hurting people, why you're so weary.
or you know what kind of fake behavior you've seen, but we do want our family and friends to see Christ and we want it to see it through us. And so that God does come back to the pastors and teachers teaching to love one another as Christ told us to love him and to live wholeheartedly for him. All right, so thank you, people hurting people. If I didn't answer that 100% the way you were asking, then go ahead and give me a follow-up question. I've got, um, what do we got here? Another 10 minutes or so. So you might have time to get one in. I'll take a look at this log later on and may start it out with a question that you have a little bit later, all right? So we have another question from Jim. Uh, Jim says, after your altar call, we pray. I can be forgiven by the death of Jesus on the cross. Romans 10, 9. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Explain. All right. Um, so I'm praying my, my altar call prayer. When I'm asked people to give their lives to Christ, I want to lead them to Christ. And it's thought through very carefully to contain the parts of the gospel that we need to have. The pivot included, meaning we're turning from the world and we're beginning to live for him. So I have people pray with me, our Father in heaven. Um, I know that I've sinned. And I, excuse me, Father, um, Father in heaven, I know my sin. Now I know I've sinned. I confess I've sinned. And I know my sin has separated me from you. I also understand that I can be forgiven by the death of Christ on the cross. And so I invite you into my life and I turn from my sin that I can live for you. So the discrepancy that you see is I can be forgiven by the death of Christ on the cross. And I just mean dying in my place, the penalty of death being paid for, so it doesn't have to be paid. Romans 10, 9 says, you believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And yeah, I don't see a discrepancy between those two. Could it be better if I pray? Um, let me just, just try it and see if it would be better. Um, you know, I confess that I've sinned. I know my sin has separated me from you. And I, uh, but I understand that through the death and resurrection of Jesus that I can be forgiven. Through the death, um, shedding of the blood and resurrection of Jesus that I could be forgiven. Um, believe in your heart you will be saved that you resurrect from the dead. Yeah, so I, uh, I think that that could be better. I think if we added those three in, the death, the shedding of the blood, and the resurrection, it could be a better explanation of what it means for Jesus to die in your place. Um, I certainly, yeah, I'm certainly not trying to make a complete summary of how we're saved and how we commit our lives to Christ, but I do like it, Jim. I like adding that in because it does say in Romans 10, 9, if you believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, uh, you shall be saved. And putting that into the Lord's Prayer, I think would be a good thing. All right? So listen later on tonight, and you'll see if I lead people in a prayer that has the resurrection of Jesus in it. All right, Jim, thank you for that observation. I appreciate that, maybe even that correction. All right, uh, good stuff. If you have a question, then go ahead. If you're new here, wanna welcome you. If you have a question, go ahead and write your question down, then write the your question out, rereading it a couple of times, giving the reference if you would like to, so that we can take time uh, to take a look at it. So I'm just gonna go through here and see if we have any more questions. We may be in the, uh, at the end, okay, we got one more. Um, okay, we got a follow-up looks like here from people hurting people. We've got another seven minutes. So if you have a question, you can go ahead and write it out. I think we have time for another one if you have a question. Looks like one just came in. Question for my cousin. Weary because people want human answers and will not turn to Jesus. Apparently people at church are being openly mean and picking on people. So cousin, sad. All right, so yeah, I understand. Um, yeah, people just aren't perfect. And we just have to not put our, put our faith and hope in people. And it's a drag when the church isn't what the church should be. And that's just the truth. It's just a drag. But the church is never going to be perfect until Jesus comes and makes us perfect. And um, so I don't know what's going on there. I don't know the people that are, that are there. Um, I would suggest your cousin talking to someone, maybe at the church, maybe getting some advice from them from what they want them to do. 
that's what I would want someone who's going to our church. And there were people who were just misrepresenting Christ and being mean. I would want them to sit down and talk to someone and just to see what the direction that we might give them based on details. Because you can't write out a lot of details here on people hurting people. All right. So, um, yeah, I understand that those things happen and it's a drag. All right. So I think we had another question come in. So Red Sanchez says, what are your views on egalitarian and complementaryism? All right. So this will be our last question for today. Thank you guys. Um, I'm not going to answer this. I'll see you later. No, I'm just kidding. Um, all right. So egalitarian and complementarian. Um, egalitarian believes that women and men are equal and have equal roles. Complementarians believe that men and women are equal and have different roles that complement each other. I am an egalitarian, excuse me, I'm a complementarian, not an egalitarian. I'm a complementarian. I believe that there can be different roles and you can still be equal. A general and an admiral, for example. The general might be an awful person, but he submits to the admiral. No, the general may be an awful person, but the admiral submits to him. Or let me, let me say this again. Let me get my ranks right. So you have a general and you've got a colonel. The colonel submits to the general, although the general might be an awful person. They are equal in their humanity, but they have a different role to play. And I believe that that is the case between a husband and a wife and between Christ and the Father. And you see Jesus submitting to the will of the Father, although they were equal. That's the example that you have before you have the example of how women and men are to react to one another. The important thing is that the role of the women wasn't told to the men. It's told to the women. And I encourage women to submit to your husbands in things that are simple and don't, I don't want to say don't matter, but maybe don't matter as much as the best word. It's okay to go like, like I do in, in, in giving sometimes, in, in tithing. Sometimes I'll just say, you know, by faith, I just want to give. Just trusting you because you said if, that if I give, it will be given back to me. And I, I'm going to trust you, Lord, that I might be able to have more to give in the future because I give. So you could say, look, God wants me to submit to my husband. And so he wants to do this thing that I might not want to do, but I'm going to do it. And I'm not talking about anything that's sinful or anything that's against your will. Okay. I'm talking about just something that is pretty simple. Um, you know, he wants to buy a new stovetop. You guys can afford it. You think yours is fine and should save the money for something else. Something like that, say, go ahead. Okay, yeah, let's do it. You can even say, I don't know that we should, but let's do it. And go ahead and submit. We're all supposed to submit to one another. I have to submit to people. You have to submit to people. We all have to. We just don't like it in those terms. Um, and the husband is to, to love the wife and die for her. And that means if she isn't submitting, that you love her and die for her. If you're willing to, to go, well, she's not submitting, so I'm not going to love her and die for her. Well, love her and die for her and let her worry about her role. And I think that if you love her and die for her, she might find out you're not looking for your own way, but you have her best interest in mind. And so you're not going to be doing things that don't take her best interest in mind. And I think that uh, complementarianism, an extreme view of it, puts all women under all authority of men or make women a complete, like completely subservient to men. And I think that's wrong or don't have women in any kind of leadership roles at all. And I think that women should be in leadership roles. So these are those two different views. And where I stand is, as I said, um, complementary but not an extreme complementary. All right. I do believe that there are different roles, but I believe that we are completely equal in Christ. In Christ Jesus, there's no male and female. We're all equal before him. But here on earth, in a marriage relationship, there are different roles. And um, that's basically what the complementary view and egalitarian view are trying to deal with. I guess it also deals with in ministry, women in ministry. And um, I, again, would take a, a, a not as a strong complementary view. I believe that there are women who are gifted, can teach, that need to be involved in ministry. I think there are certain roles that are off limits to them. Um, only because of the order that God set up, not because they might not be more capable or more equipped, because I think in a lot of things, women would be a lot more capable to do. But I think there's a lot of women who are gifted in teaching, 
um, and should be doing certain kinds of ministry. And the complementary view, the extreme one, has completely shut them out, not allowed them to do anything. I think there's certain roles that are off limits, but I don't think it's extreme like the extreme complementary view. All right. Thank you, Rod. I appreciate that. I think I called you Red Sanchez. Rod, thank you very much. Good to have you guys here. I'm going to go ahead and sign off now. I hope that you guys are really blessed. Um, fact check these hands says, um, let's see, next Q&A or maybe in a, the future sermon, can you do a teaching on the marriage supper of the Lamb? Yeah, yeah, I would love to. All right. So good to see you guys. Thank you for being here with me. I hope you guys are blessed. If you have any questions about the message tonight, we're going to be talking about the parable of the stewards or what's called the parable of the minas. And we're going to be talking about our rewards that are in heaven. So I look forward uh, to covering that passage. If you have any questions about it, go ahead and submit them in the comment section in the studies as, as um, after they're done. And I'll add them in. I'll add one of them in as the first question in our future Q&A. Also, if you're a new believer and you have questions, don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, we want you to have access to learn the things that you can learn uh, when you can. All right. Thank you guys. I appreciate your questions and I will see you all later 